0: Welcome to the Cello Sherpa podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Sherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. In our last episode, we released part one of this fantastic conversation on rosin. So, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, I recommend starting with that episode before you listen to this one. Before we jump back into the middle of that conversation, I wanted to issue a word of caution. Don't leave your rosin in your pocket and run it through the washer and dryer. We heard from one of our listeners that this caused quite a disaster in the dryer as it melted and managed to adhere itself to everything inside the dryer, including the lint trap. So be careful where you leave your rosin. Here is part two of our rosin conversation.
1: Well, that almost raises another question about if this is a natural product, it isn't always the same, like wine, right? The same grapes grown in the same vineyard, but under different weather conditions and different amount of light. But I want to ask the players then, if you find this brand that you love, is it always the same? Or can you get a bum cake of rosin that was corked or something? It just isn't quite what it usually is. Maybe they sourced the resin from a different place or the temperature wasn't right or something went wrong in that batch. Have you ever found that your go-to brand is not reliable? I guess, Peter, I'll ask you that first since you use two different kinds.
2: So I haven't found there to be differences in the rosin when I get it fresh. But one thing that can happen if you're irresponsible sometimes like myself and leave your music bag in the car when it gets really hot, if the rosin melts and then Uh re-solidifies, some people think that that (laughs) can change the way it feels. (sighs) And I have had a cake of Kohlstein that just didn't feel right after that happened. So I'm careful now to not let my rosin melt in the car. But the harder the rosin, the less likely it is to melt. So my malish light doesn't ever do that. So yeah, I think the melting and resolidifying can be a problem. And actually, that's something I wanted to ask Cameron real quick, if you don't mind. With the cooking of the rosin, you said you hold it at certain temperatures. And I wasn't going to mention this on the podcast at all, but being a home brewer of beer, that's one of the things that we do with the grain is you have to hold it at certain temperatures for different enzymatic or proteolytic reactions to occur. And I'm wondering, and if this is part of your secret recipe that you don't have to divulge, but I'm wondering what types of reactions take place with the rosin and if the interior of my car actually heats up to as hot as you're cooking your rosin.
3: <laughs> Probably not getting to the same temperature I'm cooking rosin at, but I certainly would agree with you that recooking or remelting a rosin does seem to change the properties and usually not for the better. I've messed up some batches <laughs> that I wasn't happy with or like I had a problem with the the rosin or the cooking or something like that and I went back and tried to remelt it and it's not the same. I'm not a chemist, I don't know the technicalities of of what this would change in the actual properties itself of whatever molecules are <laughs> bouncing around in there, but I have found that trying to remelt or recook a rosin changes the way that it feels one of the things again thinking about cooking like varnish and holding it at a specific temperature and a specific length of time is it does change the color specifically with colophony. it's a little bit like sugar you know if you put like sugar in a saucepan or a frying pan or something and you turn it on it will go from a white cube to an amber color to a red to a mahogany to chestnut to black. So the longer you cook colophony, the darker the color will get. And that's just one of the natural properties that's really great about it. So a lot of these dark rosins, they might just be cooking it for a lot longer. And when making varnish, you want a beautiful dark red-brown color as a base for varnish. So for my own varnish, I cook it for many, 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 many hours to achieve that color. So then you don't have to add any pigments or colorants to it afterwards it's just the cooked colophony has that beautiful color just built in but the thing that that I've found with the cooked colophony is it becomes a lot more powdery and a lot more brittle and that's another component that the cooked down resin has so the longer you cook it the more brittle and powdery it becomes and maybe that cooks into a rosin and, and kind of imparts that powderiness or something but for the way that i cook my rosins so that is one of the components of cooked colophony, is that it does get darker the longer you hold it at a certain temperature for a longer time higher temperature longer time
1: so does that explain the difference between the light and dark that everybody's talking about i use something dark and i use something light it's just a matter of how long it was prepared into rosin yeah
3: I think it could be. It also really depends on the tree species itself. Some tree resins are really, really dark. Pine resin is straw yellow when it's fresh, whereas some of the other conifers will have a really dark, almost black resin resin right out of the tree. They could be blending those sort of resins together to get their rosin. My guess is that it's probably mostly cooked colophony because then you can just use the same ingredient that you use on your light stuff. You just leave it on the stove longer. Right, It'll change that darker color.
1: So Darius, have you had any instances with the brand that you use where they were inconsistent? Maybe they were made differently, you know, like like your favorite wine doesn't always taste the same every different year, but have you found any variants?
4: I actually have not. And uh, maybe because I buy it so rarely that maybe those... Variants have come and gone, but I buy the same rosin every two years or so. It lasts so long. But what I find challenging is because it just comes in, it's just wrapped, is keeping it intact without, like, when you drop it, it's gone, you know? So
0: so I actually
4: found that talking to my base friends and getting an empty box of Pops rosin, like the red box,
0: that I
4: could show you if I was on video, but we were on the podcast <laughs> so, I put my Salco rosin inside and just protects it perfectly. So, it's a great, that's maybe yeah. a little tip for students or whatnot.
1: Don't drop your rosin. Don't leave it in the car. And don't microwave it if you think you want to make it better. But, Joel, have you had any rosin mishaps?
0: Okay. So, I used to drop my rosin all the time. And then my mother got so. Tired of it that she would start melting it on the stove to put it back together. <laughs> and so, so
3: did it did it work still?
0: Not really. <laughs> but I actually have I have a really great story that I'd like to share. I think Darius knows this story. Talking about teachers and their love of rosin. Our teacher, Stephen Cates at Peabody, who's no longer with us, was obsessed with Bernadette Rosin. But the thing that happened is Bernadette Rosin went from being in a little tin can, which I'm showing everybody, even though this is a podcast, from a little tin can somewhere in the 70s, I think, to the traditional glue your piece of rosin to a little cloth, basically, that you folded up. And he swore that when they changed it to the cloth kind, that they changed the formula. So he spent his entire career going to every shop, every country that he went. He visited a violin shop and he would seek out the tin of Bernadette Rosin because he was convinced that this was liquid gold, he called it. (laughs) And the reason I know this story is because Darius was one of, I think, 32 of us cellists that studied with Steve Cates and played his memorial service. And his widow collected all of these tins of rosins that he had saved for his entire career. And she was making gift bags for all of us that participated. And mind you, this wasn't a set number that he he actually had a list of people that he wanted her to reach out to because they had time to plan his memorial service and He said, these are the following people that I would like invited. He even had some people that he did not want invited. And so whoever was ultimately able to show up, we all took part in this big cello choir. So she puts these gift bags together. And she told us this story about him collecting this rosin. And she said, I want to tell you that when I collected all the tins and I put them in the gift bags, I had the exact number of cellists. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> who showed up,
1: Wow! the exact
0: number. And it still gives me goosebumps when I tell that story because it's so freaky. But the thing is, is that I have this rosin. I have tried this once because <laughs> I don't want to find out how good it is because I can't you get any more. can't anymore. find it anywhere. So it sits on my shelf and it's my homage to Stephen Cates. But I thought since we're talking about differences of rosins, it seemed like such an appropriate story to tell.
1: Well, I've been asking all the questions. I definitely don't want to monopolize that and I want to let the cellists have a chance to ask Cameron questions.
4: I have a question. Where do you get the materials for your rosin? Do you harvest it yourself? Do you buy it somewhere? How does it work? A lot of the materials are commercially
3: but well, commercially available. Oh
0: there's there's Joel Cameron's. I'm just showing everybody his rosin and I will open it up and show you the inside.
1: Oh, I love the swirl logo. So
0: it comes with a nice swirl logo. That's fire on right the, there. Yep, ah, right thanks. there. And when you open it up, oh, wow. it has, yeah, it's actually pretty different looking. It's shiny like rosin, but it's not sort of that see-through type of rosin. It has more of a milky texture to like it. like
1: beeswax almost.
0: Yeah, and then it even comes with a little piece of sandpaper so that when you first start it, you can scrape the top so that you're hair will make contact with it. So sorry, now when you're talking about it, Cameron, you can also talk about why it looks that way and where you source your materials. So go ahead.
3: Well, a lot of the materials are are available commercially. No, I, I don't harvest my own materials. I have trusted places that I get very high quality, good, pure, especially the pine resin, which I think is such an important thing that I get for mine. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is like I said, kind of available. And I knew about a lot of it because of the varnish making. So once again, a lot of the components that I've experimented with and played around with are also kind of the similar ingredients for varnish.
0: Can you talk about why yours has a different look to it than some of the other rosins? Or is that a secret? It's a
3: little bit of a secret, but it's just The difference actually between the rosin that you're showing and my original formula, which was the first one that I came up with, which again, was kind of like a more universal rosin that I was trying to make. It's just a little bit softer. So it has more of that modifier in it. Okay. That helps give it that softer tackiness. So I have three different formulas that I use. One that's the original, then an original soft, and then the cello. Each one has an increasing amount of that tackiness, the softener in it that helps give it a little bit more grip
0: is that the difference then between like violin viola cello bass rosin is it gets softer and stickier as you get to the bigger instruments that's how mine are done yes
3: okay (laughs) and i think that's how a lot of them are you just need more more grip so that when you actually drive the string with the bow the rosin can actually just stick to the string hard enough to really start the playing action and give it that articulation and pop at the beginning of the note that's really so important Like for me, the sound is secondary to the tactile feel that I've found. So I'm kind of like you, Joel, in this aspect. The first thing I want to feel is that that rosin is really bonding or is really connecting the bow to the string and that it has that immediate playability. I think it's interesting that Peter actually kind of hates that (laughs) with a fresh rosining on his thing. He wants it to play out for a couple of hours so that there's a, a more consistent playability and that it doesn't have that overly sticky grab and pop at the beginning.
1: Well, I guess more hair on the bow and larger strings, I guess would require a little bit more sticky. I also want to ask what's the difference between violin, viola, cello based the rosin. But again, it's probably progressively more hair on a bow and then larger strings, so I would imagine probably needs a little bit more grip that way.
3: I really think it's just a stickier formula as you go Up in size of the instruments. There are some types of rosins out there that are really, they have a real gritty tackiness to them. And a lot of like soloist rosins, you know, the Andrea rosin back in the day, especially their soloist one, had this really dark red color. It had a lot of powder, but it had this really aggressive tackiness to the playability. And a lot of people loved it because it just, it was so aggressive. And for soloist playing or you know people who really really just dug in on the string they absolutely loved the playability and as a as a luthier trying to like clean the instrument off with that stuff afterwards was just just awful (laughs) it it got everywhere everything was sticky like in the case it was sticky the bow was sticky like everything it just kind of like clothing it just really clung to like every surface and again Maybe it's great and it's giving you that fantastic response that the players want, but it has some it has some side effects.
2: That was always my experience with the Andrea rosin was that it you would put it on and feel great for like 10, 15 minutes. And then it's like you needed to re-Rosin more frequently to keep the same initial quality. So I feel like if you're gonna go play a concerto, like yeah, rosin right before twenty, thirty minutes great. And then you're done for the day at that point, assuming you're performing with an orchestra. But it's kind of inconvenient if you have to do it during a three or four hour practice session to have to keep rosining over and over again.
3: (laughs) Wait, wait, everybody (laughs) stop. I got to (laughs) re-rosin.
2: I did want to ask Cameron, do you happen to have the giant cake of rosin?
3: Yes. In your shop at the moment? This is cool. Not in the shop, actually. I don't have one on hand. i I was making them pretty consistently for a while and now they're just more like a special order thing, but I was making a three pound block of rosin for orchestras and schools and kind of large ensembles. That's actually an interesting thing to bring up because that's really what got me into making rosin. I hadn't made a rosin. I'd talked about making rosin with a coworker of mine who was also the bow specialist at Williams Gangaki, Daniel Medina. He's up in Boston at Johnson Strings now. And we talked about rosin formulas or rosin recipes. And we kicked around the idea. So I had this kind of idea of a rosin that I wanted to make. And a local cello teacher and high school teacher here in town, Jake Hood, we were talking about rosin. And he's like, I'm so frustrated. I keep buying rosin for the school. We spend money. We get this big box of the cheap little cakes with the wood sides on it. I hand them out to all the students. They immediately lose them, drop them, break them, they disappear. We've spent this money. I give the rosins to the kids. We're out of rosins halfway through the year. I'd really love it if I could have kind of a bigger block of rosin that I could keep in the classroom and I could keep an eye on it and keep it protected, but it's big enough for everybody to share. And I was like, that's a really great idea. Could totally do that. I have this rosin recipe I've really been wanting to try anyways. I have the ingredients. Let's try it. So I made this block of rosin for him that's three pounds. It's eight inches across.
1: (laughs) That thing's going to last till the class of 2083.
3: (laughs) I checked with them the next year. He had it for a year and, you know, halfway into like the next semester, they'd gone through half of it. (laughs) so wow yeah it was like the
2: diameter of a soccer ball and several inches (laughs) deep right
3: i mean it was yeah it's a think of it of a size of a it's it's the size of a cheesecake that's what i'll say
1: (gasps) the guinness book of world records for the largest rosin cake
3: rosin
4: cake i'm just looking at it on the website it's beautiful it's like a dessert almost like a (laughs) jello or something so it'll be I wonder if a, like a symphony orchestra would be interested in getting something like that. So, you know, just walk on stage and just get a few swipes. That, and walk on stage.
1: Yeah, and then log the feedback from each of the players on whether it's sticky enough, <laughs> tacky enough, too dusty, too smooth, doesn't have grip, doesn't like the sound. Yeah, it would be interesting to just see how all of those opinions materialize. But I have loved this episode. I just think this is fascinating. And even though I think the chelsea you guys think it's kind of, boring or it's it's just secondary or maybe even tertiary to what you actually are concentrating on. But I think it's so important for the younger cellists to play around with that just like you all did, go on their own personal rosin journey because it really sits right at the place where the music is born and in your instrument, right? Between the bow and the strings themselves. And as you all have said, if it's the rosin's not right, really nothing else is going to feel right or sound right coming from what you're intending to produce sound-wise. So I just think it's absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, before we wrap up, does anybody have anything else they'd like to add that hasn't been said? I could say one more thing. I think
2: one really important aspect about picking a rosin is trying to match the equipment you're already using because different bows feel different, have different characteristics about them and you might want to try and enhance certain things about one bow and maybe not another bow, or maybe an instrument is very bright, so you want a darker-sounding rosin, or maybe an instrument is very warm, and so you can go super bright with the rosin. But I think by the time you're playing an instrument that's a high-quality student instrument or a professional instrument, matching that instrument and that bow that you're using becomes a part of the equation too. So not one rosin is going to work for everybody.
3: I completely disagree. My rosin is perfect and it will work for everyone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Cameron.
3: (laughs) That's right. That's
1: exactly what you need to say as a businessman, Cameron. You nailed it. Center target.
4: I'm going to definitely try your cello rosin. I'm going to order it now and see how it goes. Maybe I'll change (laughs) after decades of using Salco. I might change. Who knows?
1: (laughs) Or it'll be like Peter three swipes of Salco and then two swipes of Cameron's.
0: Yeah, since everybody's been so gracious to share their time with us today, let's just go around. And if you can say where people can find you online, if you have a website you want to talk about, I will put this in the show notes so people don't have to write it down. But why don't we start with Peter, then go to Cameron, Darius, and Amy, and just let our audience oh, know where it, people can I find you. I should
2: probably refresh that for myself. Let me make sure my website is still working. Goodness, <laughs> yeah. it's, I keep getting billed by WordPress, so it must be. Okay, yeah, Peter Garrett com.
3: <laughs> My name is Cameron Robertson. You can find me at www.cameronsviolinworkshop.com. I'm also on Instagram at Cam And I'm at dskora.com,
4: dskora.com.
1: And I'm at www.clearresources.com. If you're interested in compliance, legal ethics, and risk, maybe you need to, I don't know, pivot from your music career into legal compliance, then you might want to check out my website.
0: Well, thank you to Amy for guest hosting today. And thank you all so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joel. Thank you so much to Amy McDougal for guest hosting this episode. Thank you to Cameron Robertson, Peter Garrett, and Dariusz Skodaczewski for joining us today for this Rosin discussion. And of course, thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on our guests and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where cellist Dariusz Skodaczewski joins us for a one-on-one conversation. We talk about his incredible journey from growing up in Poland behind the Iron Curtain to coming to America to study and eventually working his way up to his principal position in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. We're here to serve you. So if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.